welcome back to another season of Psychological. Psychological is a podcast that started during lockdown and it aims to make an evidence-based contribution to conversations about child and adolescent well-being, development and learning and neurodiversity. I'm Lou, I'm a neurodivergent academic at the University of Reading. You might remember me from last season as Louisa and today I'm talking to the wonderful Sue Fletcher Watson from the University of Edinburgh. Sue is the original creator of the Psychological Podcast and hosted seasons one and two. And you can find all of Sue's episodes by searching for Psychological in your podcast app, as well as all of the last season's episode with me too. Uh, today, however, Sue isn't hosting. She's on the phone with me to talk about one of her recent papers, Inclusive Practices for Neurodevelopmental Research. So hello, how are you doing? Hi, Lou. I'm really well, thank you. It's a real treat to be talking to you and mm-hmm. sitting on the metaphorical other side of the podcast table. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I did one last season, didn't I, where I kind of like flipped the script and I was on the other side. So that was interesting as well. It was quite fun. It's fun to be on the other side. Yeah. So we, we do actually have a bit of a different format paper today. So we've got some slightly different questions to the usual ones. So this week, I'm going to start off by asking you to just briefly summarise what you created in the paper that we're talking about today. Yeah, I think what we wanted to make was a sort of introductory guide to what we called inclusive practices. Mm-hmm. Um uh, so um, kind of participatory practices, you know, partnership with people with lived experience of whatever it was that you might be interested in studying um, with specific relevance to kind of neurodevelopmental d- diversity. So, you know, most of my research has been with autistic people, but we were trying to make it applicable if you were working with um, folk with ADHD or dyslexia, dyspraxia, Tourette syndrome, you know, um, those sorts of things and it it might be relevant more widely but that's what we had in mind when we were writing it okay and what sort of key considerations came out then um, for inclusive research or what sort of key considerations did you go over in the paper yeah we went through six of them um Mm -hmm. and we were trying to sort of think sequentially Mm -hmm. I, i suppose we were thinking particularly about people who were starting up inclusive practice you know so 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 how do you get the ball rolling um, in terms of building partnerships with people that can then sort of grow and evolve into something more ambitious. So mm. we started with just, you know, who do you approach and how? So so talking people through that process of kind of working out your criteria, your, your sort of selection criteria, if you look mm. like, for the, for the optimal people to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, really trying to avoid a tokenistic, like any old autistic person will do kind of approach, you know, like thinking about, what do people bring in terms of the specifics of their lived experience and also maybe the professional knowledge that they bring into your um, into your kind of research context? We then talked about how you set expectations in a new partnership. So mm-hmm. that's a really important thing for me. It's all about sort of honesty and transparency. You will make mistakes. You can't always do everything that you would like to do, but you can try and be transparent about, you know, the kind of boundaries of the research project. Mm-hmm. Um, we then talked a bit about very kind of specific inclusion measures that might apply to a community. So like things like thinking about the sensory environment where you meet, thinking about how you communicate with your communication partners. You know, so if mm-hmm. you're doing a project um, with a lot of people who are dyslexic, you know, you maybe don't want to mediate a lot of stuff through written material or you want to think carefully about the font that you use and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Um, we talked a bit about intersectionality. So 
again, coming back to that idea of what do the people bring to the table and how mm-hmm. can you um, uh, be maximally maximally inclusive mm-hmm. beyond the specific um, uh, aspect of lived experience or identity that's that's very pertinent to your project, you know? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that's, that's very common is that, um, you know, I might work with... Um, autistic community members in my research but often within the autistic community they may be the most privileged people within that community right often mm-hmm. white people yeah um uh you know born in the uk um you know advantaged in in those sorts of ways right so mm-hmm. thinking about can you go beyond you know that kind of first layer if you like yeah um and the last two things we talked about were really both about the concept of the power balance when you're doing Mm -hmm. a participatory project you know so me as the researcher I'm paid a very good salary I have a lot of resource and support Mm -hmm. um, and I'm asking someone essentially to come in in their spare time to give me their expertise and when I say give me their expertise I might be asking them to talk about mental health difficulties Mm -hmm. that they've had difficult times in their life you know experiences at school you know all all sorts of things or or maybe not talk about those things but bring that knowledge to bear on the project right so that's a heavy yeah yeah so we we talked about a few ways that we could sort of make sure that or not make sure but but make an effort towards Mm. um uh recognizing that power imbalance yeah. making sure that knowledge was exchanged in both directions between the researcher and the community representatives um, and, and and trying to create an opportunity for kind of empowerment, mm-hmm. emancipation maybe among those community representatives that they go away from the project having learned something genuinely useful for their lives yeah. and for what they want to achieve. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's, sorry, that was quite lengthy, but no, that's, that's yeah it's all really interesting and like really really good recommendations it's a great place to start if you are thinking about doing more inclusive research it's a really good guide so yeah that's why we're talking about it I guess (laughs) because it's interesting but yeah I was going to ask as well like what it was that actually motivated you to write the paper I guess the motivation is to kind of help people do more inclusive research but are there kind of other motivations that we didn't address perhaps in what you've said so far Well, I mean, one interesting thing about this paper is that we were actually invited to submit it, which is a really interesting phenomenon. That's good. Um, Yeah, so this Mm -hmm. journal kind of looks for authors who can write a sort of introductory review Mm -hmm. type piece on a topic. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was really, really flattering. And and it was really nice to feel that the the editors of that journal perceived a need for a piece of, of of writing like this mm. and also perceived that we would be a good team to deliver it so that was that was really wonderful and is okay. is a great um example of where the field is you know the sort of the, the direction i think we're heading in yeah it's promising actually it's really promising yeah it is really promising isn't yeah. it it's really promising um mm-hmm. and i particularly was keen to write as i said you know even though my experience has been um mostly working with autistic people i think that I was really keen to write something that would reach beyond um, autism research and think about, you know, the sort of principles that could be applied in neurodevelopmental mm-hmm. research more generally. So that was a big thing as well, mm-hmm. um, was having the chance to write something that might go out to a slightly broader audience. Yeah, just um, 
Yeah, I think in autism research, I mean, it is far from perfect, as you well know, Lou. Hmm. But um, we are probably engaging, or, or, or there are examples of participatory work that really are leading the field, and it would be nice to to have that sort of spread. yeah, to kind of extend that a bit more. Yeah, sort of alluding to that as well. So you kind of I think you briefly mentioned it in that answer just then, but you co-authored your paper with autistic people as well, didn't you? The one that we're talking about today. Yeah, absolutely. So there are five authors on the paper and three of them are autistic and mm -hmm. they're all close collaborators of ours. So um, the the two non-autistic authors, myself and Catherine Crompton, mm -hmm. we both work at the University of Edinburgh um, and our collaborators are all kind of local Edinburgh um, community leaders and experts. Um, and it was interesting writing it actually because there was i think they won't mind my saying there was early on some sort of slight diffidence um on the part of our co-authors about whether they really had sort of earned co-authorship or mm -hmm. you know and and i was a bit nervous about again about a form of tokenism you know just kind of it would be easy for me to invite autistic colleagues to co-author papers just as a like a protection for me right like I get to polish my little shiny badge that's like look at me co-authorship um so and I was worried about that and um you know these are uh, three accomplished and, and skillful individuals but you know they weren't especially um, experienced in writing academic journal articles which is a particular kind of skill and 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 maybe maybe also not that bothered really about you know I mean I, I, don't, I don't know I don't want to put words in their mouths but no. but you know it's really important for my career it's really important for Catherine's career in a way that yeah. it doesn't it's not going to make or break you know, that's true kind of yeah they don't have that so, same sort of like input into it as an academic and kind of relying on papers thing things coming out to further your career yeah there's this different exactly exactly so so as an academic if someone offers you an opportunity to co-author a paper you can sort of be a fool to turn it down yes you know? yeah um but anyway the, the bottom line was that regardless of how experienced anyone was in terms of writing a journal article for example and going through the review process everything that we wanted to say in the paper had been generated through those partnerships. Mm -hmm. And while KB and Sonny and Fergus are not the only autistic people I've collaborated with, they they they've they've sort of been played really prominent roles in a lot of our really key projects. And we're absolutely indebted to them. And I just wouldn't I couldn't sit down and write this paper without everything mm -hmm. that they had taught me and I, I know yeah, that sounds about their experience true. yeah yeah so intellectually I thought well actually this is your work you know mm -hmm. um so so that was the bottom line for me I think with that yeah yeah that sounds great yeah I mean why do you think it's so important as well to involve people or autistic people or members of the community when you're writing about them basically <laughs> I mean I think there's just a moral principle at yeah. stake you know yeah. so same whole, whole nothing about us without us kind of thing um the the I mean who am I who am I to set myself up and be like this is autism ridiculous yeah yeah, ridiculous. yeah I mean yeah and aut autism research has, has for years been sort of done by people that aren't autistic 
hasn't it? Sort of viewing people from the outside. So it's great to get people's input. And also a lot of autistic people have very different internal experiences to how they appear externally as well. And without kind of talking to them and involving them, it's very difficult to kind of actually get a real interpretation of what they're thinking and feeling. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so I feel like I have some expertise that's relevant and useful Hmm. in sort of, you know, methodologies and psychological theories Mm. and you know practical things about trying to get grant funding and trying to publish papers and stuff um but in terms of like which of all the different research questions we could ask next or Mm. which of all the different methods we could use to try and address that question I can't imagine how how I could be how I could possibly imagine that I would make the best choices about those things on my own yeah it just and I mean I did for years like it's it's all happened very gradually but I think I'm at the point now where I don't think we really do anything that isn't um participatory to some degree that you know obviously the level yeah varies according to the resource and the scale of the project and stuff yeah yeah definitely I guess that kind of leads quite nicely into as well you do have another paper a really great paper which goes over recommendations for participatory research so that one's called making the future together shaping autism research through meaningful meaningful participation so kind of just quickly at the end of the podcast really would you be able to tell me a little bit about that paper because I feel like that's that's kind of an interesting thing maybe to summarize so that the uh listeners I was gonna say authors listeners is the word I was looking for (laughs) can learn a little bit about that paper too yeah I'm so proud of that paper and actually um it's just become my most cited paper which is really cool because I think sometimes early career researchers have the impression that doing participatory work is maybe not a good investment of their time not as important as um you know just sticking to the kind of traditional scientific methods or whatever and I think this paper is hopefully a good example of how that's not the case so I was really excited when it overtook a much much older paper that had more citations Mm. Um, that paper was the result of a seminar series that was led by Liz Pelicano and Damian Milton um, that I was lucky enough to be a part of and I ended up kind of taking the lead on writing a sort of reflection paper on the on the mm-hmm. seminar series. The, the thing that's interesting about this in relation to the first paper that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast is that um, it, it's really coming in at a more sophisticated level, even mm-hmm. though we, we wrote it a couple of years earlier. Um, it's really, I think it's meant to be for an audience of people who are already doing a bit of participatory work, or are keen to do it. And, and want to kind of think about it, like up their game a little bit. So we, we're trying to tackle some of the more challenging um, uh, conceptual issues um, uh, as well as some practical things. But it's it's yeah. a little bit more, um, it's a little bit more highbrow probably, you know, yeah. it's not like a starter guide. No, um, no. Yeah. I mean, it's quite good, I guess, to have. So in the podcast description, they'll both be linked in there. So depending on kind of what stage you're at of thinking about participatory research, if you're already kind of in there, you can go for that second one and have a look at that. And if you're thinking about starting it up, you can look at the first one. So it's kind of nice to have both of those in one thing that people can go and look to depending on what stage they're at, which is great. The other thing I find really interesting about that seminar series, looking Mm -hmm. back, which might not be evident to the paper, um, to the reader of the paper, is that 
you know, when we when this seminar series was set up, we thought it would be about what research topics mm -hmm. do autism people want to see us investing in in the UK, in UK oh. autism research, right? So, you know, we should do more research on housing or we should do more research on mental health services or whatever, mm -hmm. right? And what really, really cle clearly came out of the seminar series was essentially, you can do research on whatever you want if we're involved, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's such an important message because I think sometimes researchers think that participatory research means you're not allowed to do the thing you're interested in. You have to do something else. Mm. And I just think that is not true. Actually, you can do the thing you're interested in engage with people talk to them about it be prepared to like mold and adapt that mm. plan that you had but it's not a sort of scolding finger that says no no that's not allowed and that's okay and that's not allowed it's much more just just work with just people with us yeah yeah, yeah. So that's, i find that really just a really hopeful message yeah. it is that answer as well. So I, we, I, we always ask at the end if people have advice for early career researchers. You kind of put a little bit of advice in there anyway. So I think there's going to be dual advice from this episode when I put together the advice episode at the end. But if you have anything else to add, do you have any advice for early career researchers or students that might be listening in? Well, I'm just going to give some advice that I think I need to take for myself at the moment as well, which is just to kind of be a bit gentle with yourself. Mm -hmm. I think. I have, um, you know, I just had like a really, really busy few months and I feel very conscious of all of the things that I had hoped to do in the last few mm. months and have not done. And, you know, just think, I just think being an academic is a hard job and it's an especially hard job when your contract doesn't last very long mm. and almost as soon as you've got your head round the postdoc job that you're doing you have to start thinking about the next one to apply for or the next grant to write and it feels you know like this sort of roller coaster and you can't put your feet down anywhere and in that context you think well I must work my hardest all the time so that I can be successful and um, yeah yeah so I just wanted to say just be a bit gentle with yourself and a bit forgiving of yourself and kind to yourself sorry it's yeah. so cheesy <laughs> it isn't. it's really really important advice it's so hard to do as well when you do feel such like external pressure to be publishing doing all of these different things it's really hard to be more gentle and people also aren't open about feeling like they need to be more gentle on them with on themselves you sort of unless you talk to people you kind of feel like everybody's just getting on with it and doing really well so it's good it is good advice to kind of be open and say actually like we do struggle and we need to be more gentle on ourselves is really important advice so yeah thank you Fine. <laughs> That's all right. So, end of the podcast, episode one. Very exciting. Episode one, season four, complete. For anyone listening, thank you so much for joining us. You can find out more about Sue and her work by following the links in the podcast description on Buzzsprout or in your podcast app. And join us again at the same time next week for another episode of Psychological. Bye. Mm -hmm.